All right, this is our 20th study on faith based on the teachings of Hebrews 11. Today we are actually going to be in 1 Chronicles 21, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll give you our introduction along the way there. But this is our 20th study on faith based on the teachings of Hebrews 11. Remember, the writer of Hebrews has listed about 10 different people from the Old Testament who were living illustrations of faith. Then he mentions six more people, but doesn't expand on the story of their lives. He just mentions their names, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. And we've been spending a number of weeks expanding on the life stories of those six people. And we're going to conclude our thoughts on the life of David today. We've been looking at the life of David for several weeks now. As I've told you for several weeks, I'm going to keep hammering away at our definition of faith until you finally say, okay, Larry, I've had enough. Don't keep repeating this every Sunday at the beginning of your message. But I just want to hammer away at this because I want you to get a good grip on what the Bible teaches as we define faith. So confusing to many people today. And, of course, the definition of faith from the Bible standpoints there in Hebrews 11:6, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and by it the elders obtained a good testimony. And those three words we're taking from each of those three phrases to help us understand this definition is confidence, conviction, and confirmation. Faith is not some mystical feeling of, hope, of, of, of hopefulness. Faith is confidence in God, resting in the promises of God, trusting God for things we can't see, accepting what God says even when we can't understand it all. Biblical faith is not based on how hard I try to believe or how emotional I get when I pray. Biblical faith is always rooted in the character and the promises of God. As I've quoted to you over and over and over again, 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul writes to Timothy, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him. It's not faith in some abstract something, it's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, he didn't say, I know what I have believed, he says, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he will keep everything I've committed to him. See, biblical faith is always rooted in the character and promises of God. So faith is confidence. Not some mystical feeling of hopefulness, but confidence in God. Resting in the promises of God. Then secondly, faith is conviction. To do what God says to do. We believe what God says is true, so we're committed to obey the Lord. Our conviction directs our behavior. We do what we do because of what we believe. That's true of all of us, all of the time, every day, every person. We do what we do because of what we believe. And so our faith, our rooted faith in God, our, our confidence in God, gives us the conviction to do what God says to do. Noah believed what God said, so he built the ark. Abraham believed what God said, so he willingly prepared to offer Isaac on the altar, even though he couldn't figure out why God was asking him to do it. Joseph believed God would take, would take his people back to Canaan just as he had promised, and so when he was ready to die, he commanded his descendants, and he said, God's going to take us back to the land one day, and when we go, whenever it is, 
He said, take my coffin with you and rebury me there in the promised land. And 200 years later it happened. Okay, but Joseph believed what God said, and so he gave that command to his descendants. If we truly believe, we will obey God. You can say, I believe, I believe, I believe all day long. But if we don't obey God, then we don't really believe. Faith brings confirmation. See, if you're living a life of faith, you'll know that God approves because He will make it known to you some way, somehow, first through the Scriptures, but then eventually through your circumstances. And even though you may feel you're in the dark sometimes, as you trust the Word of God, you will eventually see the hand of God, and you will know that it was right to trust His Word, and you'll know that you're doing the right thing, and God will bring you through. So confidence in God, conviction to obey His Word, The confirmation that gives us assurance, that is biblical faith. It's not abstract and mystical. It's concrete, solid assurance because its foundation is the Word of God. You and I are surrounded by people who say they have faith. But there's there's no fruit in their life that indicates that their faith was alive. They have no interest in God's Word. They have no interest in the fellowship with the Lord's people. They live in disobedience to God's word. It doesn't seem to faze them. And as Jesus said in Luke 6.46, that I've quoted to you uh, probably a dozen times through this series, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? See, you've heard the old saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Okay, the proof of our faith is in the living. Real living faith always motivates us to obey the Lord. That brings us to our concluding thoughts on the life of David, King David, this morning. We've been aiming in our study of David these last few weeks to investigate why he would be included in the Hebrews 11 honor roll of faith. Now, of course, we know that David was a man of faith. We can see that in the famous story of David and Goliath. David was trusting God from the time of his youth. And being that there's so much written by David and about David, we've been looking for scripture that expresses David's heart for God. And that's what we've been looking at these last, uh, these last three weeks. This will be the fourth one today. This week we want to look at a passage of scripture that has always intrigued me. Uh, it hasn't intrigued me because it's mystical or mysterious. It's just that, that, that David makes two or three statements in this one event, in fact, I, I, I'm going to call them today life principle statements that, that, that reveal the depth of his faith. All three of these statements are all connected to the same incident, the same circumstance. The story is recorded for us in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. We're going to look at the, the, uh, the record there in 1 Chronicles 21, as I just told you. I'll tell you part of the story And then we will read part of the story that records David's very powerful life principle statements. David's probably in his 60s by now. He's been king for several decades. And he decides one day to direct General Joab, his his trusted commander of his army, he's been with him for years, uh, to, to travel through the land and make a count of all of his potential fighting men. Now, this act was considered by God to be a a sinful act of rebellion. It was an act of pride, perhaps. 
But, but certainly uh, an act that would indicate that David was trusting the size of his army and not trusting God. And if the fact is kind of interesting, there's a wonderful verse in Psalm 20, verse 7. says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Guess who wrote that? <laughs> yeah, David. <laughs> it was a psalm of David. <laughs> he wrote, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Joab, I want you to go and count how many guys you have in my army. Aren't we all filled with inconsistencies? I mean, we are, aren't we? So, so, so was David. Psalm 33, verse 16 to 18 says, says, No king is saved by the multitude of an army. <clears throat> a mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. But behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. Psalm 44, verses 6 and 7 says, For I will not trust my bow, nor shall my sword save me, but you have saved us, Lord, from our enemies. Proverbs 21, 31, written by Solomon. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Isaiah 31, 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Egypt had a reputation of having wonderful horses, and they could build great chariots. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And we could go on and on and on and on. These, these types of scriptures are not uncommon. But David wanted an exact number of the size of his army. General Joab, if you read uh, the whole story, he, he questioned his commander on, on the need for this numbering of the army, but David overruled, and Joab spent just, just over nine months traveling throughout the land, collecting all of the data that David was, was demanding. So I want, I want to pick up the story in, in uh, verse 7 of First Chronicles 21. And we'll see God's response to this circumstance. First Chronicles 21 and verse 7. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly. But because I have done this thing, or I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, his prophet, that would come to see him all the time, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. When I read that, I just thought, Oh, wow. Add a little commentary there. Here's Father God saying, My dear son David, you rascal, you are now toast. But I'll give you three choices for your chastisement. Not a happy day. <laughs> but, and so David comes to him and he said, David, Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you or else three days for the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me, meaning the Lord. In verse 13 is our first life principle. 
It's a wonderful, wonderful verse. David said to God, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. He says, do whatever you want to me, Lord. Just don't give me to people. (laughs) Great thought, huh? There, there, there is mercy with you, Lord. Your mercies are very great. I will fall into your hands for chastisement any day before I would want you to turn people loose on me. And my first life principle is this. Regardless of the circumstances, always choose God. Regardless of the circumstances, always choose God. I thought when David said this, I am in great distress. I have sinned. But, oh, tell the Lord, I'll I'll fall into the hands of the Lord because His mercies are great. Please don't let me fall into the hand of man. What a a tremendous statement of, of faith in the character of God. We could trace through the Scriptures dozens and dozens and dozens of verses on the mercy of God. In fact, there's a well-known Hebrew word, chized, probably not pronouncing it correctly, but it has no exact English equivalent. And so it gets translated several different ways depending on the translation and the context. Sometimes it's translated mercy. Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated compassion. Sometimes it's even translated goodness. And all of those put together give us a good word picture of what that word is conveying to us that God is righteous and holy and just, but He's also kind and merciful and compassionate. His love for His people never ends. And even in chastisement, He is compassionate. And of course, His ultimate expression of this chesed was, was at the cross of Calvary. But His chesed toward His children it is poured out on us every day. That loving kindness, that mercy, that steadfast love, that compassion of God. And I want to read you one verse. In fact, you may know it. You can turn there real quickly if you want to. Lamentations chapter 3. One of the most well-known verses in the Old Testament regarding the mercy of God. Lamentations chapter 3. When we read it, you will recognize it. If you weren't sure where it was or you want to, uh, again, here's another great verse for you Bible highlighters. If you are a Bible highlighter marker, I would encourage you, mark this, mark these two verses down, write them down, put them on a 3 by 5 card, stick them on your fridge, learn them, remember where they are. Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23. Lamentations chapter 3. In fact, the whole book, Lamentations, you know what that is? That's Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. That's why it's called Lamentations, because Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar has surrounded the city. Things are falling apart. The city is about to fall. He has this terrible siege against Jerusalem. He's eventually going to destroy it all. And Jeremiah is lamenting the judgment of God on the nation of Israel. But look what he says in the middle of this, Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That are some of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament. 
Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. He's saying, Lord, we deserve to be consumed, but it's your mercies that keep you from doing that. Because your compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God's mercies are new every morning, Jeremiah says. His faithfulness is great. And so regardless of the circumstances of your life, always choose God. Enjoy or in sorrow, in good times or hard times, in blessing or chastisement, regardless of the circumstances, always choose God. But the story isn't over. Back in First Chronicles 21, the angel of the Lord then takes the life of 70,000 people throughout Israel. And then God allows David to see the angel of the Lord standing over Jerusalem with his sword drawn. David and the elders of Israel, already dressed in sackcloth, an outward sign of repentance, they fall on their faces before the Lord and they begin to plead for Jerusalem. And let's read verse 16 and verse 17 and I'll give you life principle number two. It says, Then David, verse 16, lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven having in his right hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord God, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Life principle number two, if you blew it, own it. As we saw last week when we, speak, when we spoke on the path of repentance, David took all the blame. No hiding from his sin, no pointing fingers at anyone else, no rationalizing, no justifying. He just says, Lord, I did it. Please spare these people. Don't hurt them because of my sin. You know, lots of folks get hurt because of our sin. That's just kind of the nature of sin. Sin tends to do that. It, it, it spills over all of our sins, spill over into the lives of other people. And here, David, as he's, as he's pleading with God, he just, he just totally owns it. He says, Lord, it's me. I blew it. I own it. And I would encourage you, if God brings conviction to your heart, if you find some way in which, you are, in which God points out to you, you have failed the Lord in some way, if you blew it, just, just own the whole thing. Don't, don't try to justify it with God. Don't try to rationalize it. Don't say, well, Lord, if this hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have done this, or if this wasn't this. Just, just, just own it. David could have said, you know, I, Joab did say something to me, but Lord, I wish he'd argued with me a little harder. Well, you know, Lord, I really, I just kind of wanted to know how, how big my army was. I mean, you know, I mean, doesn't every king want to know how big his army is? I mean, no, David just said, Lord, I blew it. I own it. It's me. Please don't kill any more people. You've already taken the lives of 70,000 people in Israel. Now I see the angel of the Lord standing over Jerusalem with a, with a sword drawn. Lord, please, it's my fault. It's my fault. Don't destroy Jerusalem. And so God tells David to, to go to the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and erect an altar to the Lord in order to offer a sacrifice. 
I want to read these next few verses here and give you life principle number three. Very important truth about sacrifice. Verse 18 says, Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground, typical honoring of a king. David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself, and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Gracious man, he's not a Jew, but he's lived there in the land, and, and he, looks at, he looks at David, he sees the king coming, David says, Ornan, I'd like to buy this little parcel of land here from you uh, to, 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 to build an altar to the Lord. And Ornan says, oh, my lord the king, you don't, you don't need to buy it. Yeah, I mean, you're going to build an altar to the Lord? Just, just build it. Here, I'll just give it to you. I got, I got, I got some wood. And, I mean, he's, he's, gonna, he's basically tearing up his farm equipment. I got the oxen, and I got all the threshing things, all these things made out of wood. Just chop them up, and you know, you kill this two oxen that are that, that are turning this threshing machine. He basically is giving him the whole thing. Here, you just just take it, my king. And David makes this marvelous statement. This is what's always just been such a cool thing to me. Verse twenty-four. King David says to Ornan, "No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take." what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. And life principle number three is this. If it doesn't cost, it doesn't count. It isn't real sacrifice. Offering leftovers isn't sacrifice. Giving out of our unneeded surplus isn't sacrifice. And when Ornan offers this to David, David says, oh no, oh no, 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 no. I'm not taking your stuff and using it for my sacrifice. He said, I'm not going to give to the Lord something that doesn't cost me. This is my sacrifice to God for what I have done. And he said, I'm paying for it. You see, if it doesn't cost, it doesn't count. Sacrifice is the willingness to give up something valuable for someone who is more valuable to us. You sacrifice quiet time alone, maybe for some chaos time with your kids. If your kids still are giving you chaos time. For us, it would be our grandkids giving chaos time. You, you may sacrifice something that you wanted to do for something that your spouse wants you to do. Didn't hear any guys say amen there, but you sacrifice your time to help someone else, even though you had other plans. You see, it's, it, it's that heart attitude of, of, of dying to self, self-denial, that, that life is not all about us, the universe does not revolve around us. If we are living for the glory of God, then it's all about God. And you know, th- throughout the whole Old Testament, regarding sacrifice, 
we see that, that pr principle that was called in the law of Moses, the first fruits. God required the best of the flock and the first of the harvest. You didn't bring the crippled lamb for sacrifice. You didn't bring the bull with the broken leg. You didn't bring the leftover crop after you filled all your own bins. When you brought an offering to God, you brought the best of the flock and the first of the crop. And when it comes to sacrifice, if it doesn't cost you, it doesn't count. You say, well, why is that? Well, I'll give you four quick reasons. I don't know how quick they'll be because we're going to develop it for a minute or two here. But Sacrifice demonstrates the reality of our commitment. Sacrifice demonstrates the reality of our commitment. Shows that we really mean it. Sacrifice demonstrates the depth of our love. Not much love if you're just giving your leftovers. But sacrifice demonstrates the depth of our love. Sacrifice demonstrates our rejection of selfishness. Saying to people and to God, my life's not all about me. My life's about you. My life's about bringing glory to God. My life's about reaching other people. And sacrifice demonstrates our, our rejection of selfishness. And then the fourth reason is sacrifice demonstrates that we have a daily discipline of self-denial. So, so what does this daily discipline look like? How does this discipline of sacrifice play out in our day-to-day -day routine? Came across an interesting acrostic this week fellow talking about sacrifice, he said, uh, go on a diet. And what he meant was not you know, cutting down on the food you eat, but just that acronym D-I-E-T. And, uh, and, this, and, and this is what the acronym stands for. The D stands for dedicate your life to doing God's will. Not a one-time event, but just as people often say, well, I've dedicated my life to the Lord, or, or I rededicated my life to the Lord. But I mean, but this is a, a regular focus of seeking the Lord's will and doing it. Dedicate your life to the Lord. That's the D, the, the letter I. Invite God to search your motives. Psalm 139, verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, our hearts can be deceitful and we need to be submissive to God to allow God to expose a self-deception about our real agenda, our real motives. Why am I doing this? So David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me or test me and know my thoughts. Invite God to, to search your motives. And then the letter E, evaluate your values. This is related to God searching our motives, but, but, but why do we do what we do? What are we working to achieve on this earth? Everything we do is for a reason. What is that reason? I just want to feel better. I just want to be free from pain. I want comfort. I want recognition. I want respect. I want control. See, everything we do is motivated by something. And is, is, is the glory of God in the center of my choices, or is it kind of out on the fringe there someplace? Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek 
first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's, meaning, that's the top priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then all these things, food, clothing, etc., will be added to you. You see, am, am I seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness first? Or is it just kind of an add-on if it's convenient? We evaluate our values. And then T, in our diet acronym, transfer control. God is in control, and we know God is in control. But, you know, we often view that in the, the big picture sense. God's controlling the national scene. God's controlling the things in the world. God's controlling the weather patterns. God's, you know, the God, God's overseeing everything, and God's in control. Now, we always think of that in this, in this big picture sense. But, but are, are we clinging to control in our personal lives? A lot of people do. They know God's in control, but I'm going to make sure I've got my little time here that I'm going to be in control of. And I want to think about this transferring control that is giving these things to God. I'll give you three more T's here. The first one is time. Redeem the time, Ephesians tells us. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5 says. Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days so that we can apply our hearts to wisdom. You see, spend time with God and spend time for God. But give your time to God. Transfer control of your time to God. The second T, treasure. Your treasure. There's an enormous amount of teaching in the Scripture about, about money and finances. Jesus said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses, Luke 12, 15. Matthew 6, 33, that we just quoted, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And just a few verses before that, in, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Where your treasure is, there will your heart also be. The famous, or used to be famous, so uh, the very well-known Christian financial concepts guy, Larry Burkett, been with the Lord now for about 20 years. His organization still going on by, by a different name. But Larry Burkett used to say money is a barometer. It just, sort of, it just sort of tells you what's going on inside. It isn't the money itself. It's what, it's what we do with it. The way we manage it. The way we spend it. The way we give it. It's just kind of a barometer of what's going on in, in, in your heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart also be, Jesus says. So we want to transfer control of our time to God. We want to transfer control of our treasure to God. Give your treasure to God. And then the third T, talk. Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so we may know how to answer every man. Psalm 19.14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. James 3.10 says, Out of the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. You see, is God in control of our time and our treasure and our talk? Are, are we ready to go on a sacrificial diet, D-I-E-T? Now I want you to see how this circumstance ends for David. 
Let's read here in verse 24 again. Then the king David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold, quite a bit of money, for, by, by weight for the place. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. So the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to its sheath. David, the man of faith, experienced the mercy of God even when he made a disastrous blunder. When he sinned, when he lost his focus on God, when he made a self-centered choice, and and he, he has left us a pattern of faith to follow. Regardless of the circumstances, choose God. In joy or in sorrow, in good times or hard times, in blessing or chastisement, regardless of the circumstances, always choose God. If you blow it, own it. No hiding from sin, no pointing fingers at anyone else, no rationalizing, no justifying. Just own it and plead for mercy. And remember, when God is, we're giving God our time, treasure, and talk, if it doesn't cost, it doesn't count. If, if, if it's all about in our lives convenience and comfort, rather than pursuing the will of God, it isn't sacrifice. If we offer God our, our leftover time and treasure, it isn't sacrifice. With all the grace that God pours out on us every day of our lives, can we give Him any less than our best? Many of you are familiar with Romans 12.1. Where Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul's saying, with all the grace God pours out on us every day of our lives, can we give Him any less than our best? Let's pray. Lord, here in America, we are so blessed in so many ways. We have no idea all of the wonderful things that we enjoy of the comforts of life here in this country. Poor people in America are are richer than most of the people in the world. And Lord, we get very comfortable. We get very much used to it. And the thought of sacrifice is so uh, distasteful to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to just remember these life principles that David laid in his life when he got caught up with the pride of the moment and made a foolish choice. Lord, he still threw himself before you, said, Lord, I will take whatever you give me. Just don't let me fall into the hand of man. Lord, help us to always choose you in every circumstance, whether it's joyful, whether it's, uh, whether it's sorrowful, hard or easy, whatever it may be. May we always choose you and your way. Lord, when we blow it, help us to own it. Lord, help us to realize as you call on us to give of our time and our treasure and our talents and our, and our talking, 
Lord, help us to remember if it doesn't, doesn't really cost us anything, it doesn't count. You're not interested in our, in our leftovers. You're interested in our best. So may we, Lord, live for you with a spirit of excellence and a spirit of diligence, wanting to serve you and please you and honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.